Every one of us on this planet today is facing the same crises. This is totally new. You know, you cannot go to training or job interviews and you don't have food in your belly. You know, when some people get stinking rich or someone that will trickle down and everyone will be happy and... You know, uh, that's the way the so-called capitalist economy works. There's no such thing as utopia. There's no such thing as a perfect condition for human mind or human nature. People have to realize, wait a minute, there's something bigger going on here. I have been ripped off. We have been ripped off. What's it got to do with capitalism? Welcome to Renegade Inc., the talk show which allows us to think differently. If you create money at home, it's called counterfeiting. If an accountant cooks the books, it's fraud. But banks can and do create money or credit each time we take out a debt agreement with them. The production of money is actually a democratic act, driven by the trust that we have in the monetary system. So in a transparent age, we ask who should have the privilege of producing our money and what should we get in return? In 2016, a survey of British politicians showed that a significant proportion of them thought it was the Royal Mint who was in charge of issuing our money. This is the level of ignorance within the political class. So on this programme, we shine a much-needed light on who actually produces our money. Joining me to walk through the credit-fuelled confusion are the founder of banking platform Suscada and the chair of Ecology Building Society, Stephen Round. Also, the writer and economist and friend of the show, Anne Pettifer, uh, who's just written an excellent book called The Production of Money. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you very much Thank for you. coming by. Um, Steve, start with you. When you look out at the UK banking sector as a whole today, um, and we've only got a half-hour show, <laughs> um, what do you see? Um, I see the potential of a very good uh, system. Unfortunately, it just isn't working very well for many millions of people. I think if you see now the changing environment where banks, new banks, challenger banks are, are, are coming on board, but the reality is that actually access to finance for many people and small businesses is becoming more and more difficult. I think that's the challenge for us all is how do we actually as a developed world and a developed economy actually ensure that we are offering first class products and services to as many people as possible rather than the chosen few 10% where everyone seems to be challenging at. What is the blockage? What are the blockages? Is it regulatory capture? As, um, as chairman of the Building Society, I would, I would always say that regulation can be very painful, but I don't think we can blame the regulators per se for, for all of that. I think the reality is appetite for actually change. I think everyone is now going for an easy option. Um, what is that easy option? The easy option is let's create a new banking platform, let's reduce branch networks, let's use technology to enable people to access financial services. There are many, many people who actually are not capable of actually accessing those financial services through technology. They uh, need support. Why, why, why is that? Because oh, of I, their digital literacy? Uh, uh, yeah, a mix of digital literacy, uh, fear, uh, concern, and also choice. We, we're in a situation now where the UK banks, uh, I think, are uh, praising themselves for having 4 million basic bank accounts. The reality is it's a product and a service that the banks don't want to deliver, and most people don't want, because the actual flexibility in that product is not very good for most people. The advent of universal credit hitting a lot of those people about the ability to budget and whatever, the banks are really not trying to deliver at that level at all because of profit, let's be blunt. So let's get to social purpose then, because profit, if it becomes all about profit, that uh, supersedes social purpose every time. And social purpose is something that you've given a lot of thought to. And 
One of the concerns I have when we talk about social purpose or, you know, or, or um, doing the right thing is that bankers pay at lip service and it's a nice to have yep. as opposed to a must have. Talk us through this because I know you've given it some thought. Yeah, I think that the reality is I, I, I don't think we should mix social purpose with charity. I think the point is about it's a good business practice. Now, in the UK, we have building societies who are mutually owned organisations. Um, only now 46, 47 left. But that doesn't mean that actually you can't offer a really good value service to individuals, but actually look at long-term profit rather than short-term. Banks generally and, and pension funds and the like are looking for returns every year. It's difficult to actually plan a, a whole distribution strategy aimed at creating value over a period of time. Things are changing. Um, we at Ecology are a small member of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, which is 39 banks around the world, uh, represent 24 million people, who are looking at that very issue of offering real high quality services, high value across the whole piece, and actually the triple bottom line, as people call it. But actually, we believe it can be done. It takes time. Now, banking used to be about time. But how do, you, how do you buy yourself time when you've got Q1, Q2 reporting? Well, the, the reality is we've all got those. You know, I, I go back to my building society. You know, we, we as a small building society, we, we are a balance sheet of 175 million. We have 10,000 members. And actually, we have 25 staff. And we have to deal with everything that actually the PRA, Bank of England, give to us, as RBS have to do, as, as Barclays have to do. And we manage this year will be a, another, um, we have to make profit. We have to put it into our capital so we can actually lend and, and, and save more. So we can do that. Banks can do that. It's just about choice. It's about making the right choices. And it's about understanding what business you're in. Now, I, I grew up in a, in a time where banking was about providing financial access to financial services for the majority of people. I think banks are getting more and more focused on not doing that. that and... The reality is, I think they're blaming the regulator, which I do all the time, which is always nice, but the reality is they're not the cause of all the issues. They just make it easier for them to, uh, that we can complain against. But there has to be a change, and that's both internationally and, and in the UK. This myopic and this myopic focus on, very, on the short-termism initially, yeah. and also um, when you look around the, the UK banking um, sector, those two things. Just, just describe what you see from an economist's point of view. Of well, I think zooming out and looking at the, the whole system, um, and first of all, we need to acknowledge that it's a public good. It's like good sanitation or clean water. These are things that are absolutely essential to the health of an economy, which is why we invented banking. We invented banking to lend money into the real economy at affordable rates. Before we invented British banking in 1694, you know, people with bright ideas would have to go to the, to the robber baron who lived at the top of the hill and beg for money. Yeah, yeah, and be charged excessive rates of interest, usurious rates of interest. With a banking system, borrowing and lending was sort of democratised, you know. It was easier to get a loan, and you got a loan on the basis of the viability of your project, not on whether or not, you know, the robber baron fancied your daughter or not. Do you know what I mean? So, right, right. So, um, <laughs> was that a criteria? No, probably. It probably was a criteria, <laughs> yes. And uh, so that was a great thing, but now we're in a, in a world where 80% of all lending by banks, by the big global banks, is for speculation. 
they don't want to invest in the real economy because that takes time, as Steve has just said. And that takes patience and that takes, you know, going along with your, your real clients, with people, you know, making the economy work. Instead, they can just gamble on whether or not property prices in London will move up this far or down that far, or whether or not uh, swaps on interest rates will edge up this minor amount or down that minor, and on the basis of that, make billions of bucks. And so effort. why on earth would you invest in the real economy? And our regulators, our policymakers, our politicians sit on their hands and say, well, that's fine, you know, the, the market is sorting it. Well, I mean, that makes a very good point there. I mean, when I first started in banking, uh, lending, to, to, to individuals and to actually uh, small businesses. We used to have an acumen, which was Campari. And the first two things were character and ability. Yeah. That's what we used to look at, character and ability. Not means to pay, character and ability were the first two. That's gone. It really has. Computer says no. Well, absolutely. And, and, and the, the infrastructure of banks across the world has done that. And it's very difficult where you've come with a great project yeah. and, you, and you are a talented individual, you've got ability, you've got a, a team around you. It's easy to say no and, and, and take the easy option, let's speculate on, on asset-based, yeah. speculative lending. Absolutely. On, on, on pre-existing assets. Yeah. In other words, you don't have to help create new assets. Agreed. You gamble on existing assets. Yes. In property in London is one of the most fixed pre-existing assets there are. And which is why, you know, I, I find it, I get so frustrated with economists who talk about the supply and demand for housing. If you reduce the amount of finance being pumped into the property market in London, suddenly we wouldn't have a shortage of housing. It would all change quickly. Yeah. The shortage comes about because most housing is unaffordable. Yeah. There's an awful lot of housing in London that's empty. People are based in Malaysia, buying a property off, off plan and sitting on it because owning that property enables them to leverage additional borrowing. But they don't just do that with property, they do that with works of art. You know, they'll go and buy a Picasso, shove it into some vault somewhere in Dubai, in a, you know, where it's kept cold temperature, nobody ever sees it, of course, and use Picasso to leverage additional borrowing. Because, you know, you'll tell the, 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 you'll tell the, the creditor that one day you'll be able to sell your Picasso and pay back. So what's remarkable um, is the fact that post-crisis, that deleveraging has still not happened. Really it's just happened in, mine, in, a, in a minor way, but actually we've built up even more credit and, and But debt the regulator, by their inaction, surely is saying implicitly a vast bubble is actually an optimum market condition. Let's just keep going. Because, so where yeah. does this end? Where do, you're, a, you're a practitioner. Where does this end? Well, and, and give us a date. And if okay. you're wrong, we'll hold you to it. <laughs> um, my understanding is there are a number of banks going through regulation now to set up. And my understanding, again, is that the regulator is more concerned that they have enough capital that when they do fall over, that actually that's fine. They're not actually caring about what is being done, what they're doing in their yeah. business plan. And I think that's going to happen sooner rather than later, to, to, to be blunt. There's been lots of debates by, in the sector from traditional banks Ambulance societies that the new entrants have had slightly easier rules to come in and whatever, they've got great business plans, maybe, maybe not. But actually, the, as long as they have enough capital to fail, that's fine. That seems to me a very um, naive way of looking at business because yeah, that has yeah. a massive impact on the whole of us doing business. It really does. You lose confidence in the system. I mean, Anne writes in a, in a book about trust, about the, the, the concept that, that, that really you've got to trust the infrastructures that are around you. You start... And we've, we've had that the last, since the crash anyway, people distrusting whatever. And I think that's going to get worse if, if yeah. that happens. I believe yeah. that. That speaks 
exactly to your thesis and your book, Production of Money, doesn't it? Yes. Well, so the, the thing is that mainly because of ignorance, because most of us don't really understand money, these guys can get away with this. And the regulators can get away with doing foolish things like uh, insisting on capital ratio, which doesn't stop the bank from gambling. In fact, their, their intention to gamble now is much stronger because they've got British taxpayers, German taxpayers, American taxpayers on the hook. So why on earth <laughs> would you want to grow tomatoes when you can grow credit and never lose, basically? So this starves the real economy. This starves the real economy. But it comes down, in my view, to public ignorance. And, you know, as you said at the beginning, Ross, the fact that, that politicians don't understand. Money is not a commodity. It's not gold. It's not silver. It's not cigarettes. It's a promise to pay, as Schumpeter famously said. And in that sense, it's just a social construct. I promise to pay you, you promise to pay me. And we do it every time we use a credit card. We go into a shop, we show the credit card. Um, if we're credit worthy, it's probably got a fancy color like gold. If we're not that credit worthy, we probably can't spend that much on it. If it's a gold credit card, you can probably spend more. If it's platinum, you're probably a Saudi princess. You know? I think that's black. And oh, is that black? They're the black cards oh, the black without one. anything right. on them. I've got a. So, but what happens is you hand over this card. The card says this person is credit worthy, and you then uh, acquire purchasing power. You can shop for something. The shopkeeper uh, makes a sale and can probably make a profit on that. You then take the card and you put it back in your pocket. It's not the the thing for which you're exchanging, it's a thing by which you are exchanging. And it's a promise. If, if you default on your promise to pay your credit card at the end of the month or whenever, you know, there's a default. And that's all it is. And when we understand that, we understand that this is a matter of our relationships with each other. And there's nothing that can be commodified about it. The banks would love to commodify that property and gamble on it. But it's not a commodity. It's a social, me and you, we trust or we don't trust each other. Mm. And, and then, but we do have to have the institutions that uphold that trust. So there's got to be a criminal justice system which says, is she, is she going to pay? Is she going to pay and uphold that contract? And if you go to countries, as I've done in many parts of Africa, where they don't have criminal justice institutions, uh, judicial systems, an accounting system, or even a, an independent central bank, there is no money. Right. Is this why you're dim on Bitcoin, if I can put it that way? Oh, God. Because, I, look, I, know, I just know it's going to come up in this programme. Well, someone will write in and say, but you didn't mention Bitcoin. So can we just very quickly mention it and move on? Because if you promise to protect me I, you're going from to get, Bitcoin. You're going to get some rap. <laughs> and we'll protect you. You're oh, safe here. Oh, dear. But, uh, it, you, is, it is a cult. And it, but it's based we're on... We're not protecting you that much. No, <laughs> no, sure. But it's based on the same mythology that surrounds gold, which is that... I mean, I was on a debate recently with Jim Rickards, who says gold is money. Money isn't, Gold is representative of something. If you've got a bar of gold, everybody knows you're rich. If you, you haven't got a bar of gold, yeah. so, but it's not money itself. It's not the promise to pay, okay? Um, and bit, but, but the point is, the great thing about gold is that it's finite in supply. And, and that, for me, is its huge weakness. Um, because you can only have as if, if it were money, you could only have as much economic activity as there was gold in the vault of your bank. Same with Bitcoin. It's been created and designed to be finite. And then it's been subdivided millions of times and so on. But the idea of it being finite is that 
it has scarcity value and therefore the price of it must ultimately always rise. And the ones who are pushing the price up are generally the ones who... They've got a vested interest. I yeah. think what seems to me about Bitcoin is the technology. I mean, forgetting just the, the Bitcoin itself, but the blockchain yes, technology. The blockchain, and, yeah. I, and I think that, that that actually is a really good technology. I mean, for, for, for our point of view in Sascada, we're working in a project in Africa, bringing farmers, warehousing and the, and the exchange together. And part of that, we will be using some of the technology around blockchain because that, that really is a secure technology. And a lot of banks are looking at that in their own rights yeah. now. Bitcoin itself, you know, the reality, if you go to Africa, or you go to Nosa where I live, you know, it won't be happening for a while. You know, you still got to pay in cash. And that's one of the issues that I have as well, is that ultimately technology allows you to pay uh, people by phone, by everything, but actually, ultimately, someone's got to get cash from somewhere. And trust somebody else. Absolutely right. Uh, Bitcoin bad, blockchain good? Blockchain, very yes. good, yes, and very exciting, and it has a lot of potential. So that has been the really good thing that's come out of Bitcoin. It's a good place to leave the first half. Thank you both very much. Uh, join us after this short break uh, to talk more with Stephen Round and Anne Pettifer on who should really benefit from the production of money. Uh, well, to understand the monetary system, you have to understand what the goldsmiths did when they first started banking uh, in London more than 300 years ago now, uh, that if you came to me as a merchant and you had some gold coins, I'd keep it safe in my vault and I'd give you a paper receipt and the paper receipt would say, I promise to pay you your money back on demand. And uh, you'd have that receipt, maybe you'd go shopping and you know, you'd go to the shopkeeper and say, look, uh, I could go back to the goldsmith and get my gold coins and pay you, but why don't you take the paper receipt? And the shopkeeper would say, yeah, okay, I know the goldsmith, he seems to be a trustworthy guy. And so you'd pay for your goods with the paper receipt. Now that was a critical moment in history because it meant that paper receipts were being used no longer as paper receipts but as money. And when that happens, the banks can change their business model. What they do now is that they say to people, okay, we are holding your gold coins safe, but we're also lending you money. And when people came to the bank to borrow money, what the goldsmith or the bank would lend wasn't actually gold coins, but just a newly printed piece of paper. So they acquired the ability to manufacture money from nothing. And when I lend you that money, you go into debt. So for every new unit of money that comes into existence, a new unit of debt pops out. Yeah? Money and debt are counterparts on the economic balance sheet, in other words. In the production of money, you do some for heffing. Yes, absolutely. Uplifting people to say, actually, it's not that complicated. Exactly. You just need a bit of patience yeah. and, and an inquiring mind to really understand this. And you know, Ross, I, I got my inspiration for that from, from the Jubilee 2000 campaign. When we began to talk about, we need a campaign to cancel the debts of the poorest countries, everybody said, oh, no, you can't do that. It's very complicated. It's the international financial architecture, the international complicated, you know, and then there's multilateral, bilateral, and blah. It's the and what about net present value? Oh, very <laughs> difficult concept. We found that all you needed to do was to send people little briefings, you know, bullet points on one side of a page, and they quickly got it. And what was wonderful was the Treasury came to me and said to me, what is going on here? <laughs> They said, we get letters on pieces of pink paper with bunches of roses in the corner. Dear sir, will you please explain to me Uganda's cut-off date debt or why you've agreed to Uganda's cut-off date debt being at this rate? He said, how do they know about Uganda's cut-off debt? I said, 
it's not complicated, it's not rocket science, tell the housewife at her kitchen table about the stuff. She is smart, she understands. Mm. But if you keep it from her, if you keep it a secret, naturally, she's not going to be able to act or act. And we can't, we can't transform something until we understand it. And so what the finance sector is, is one of the best kept secrets in the world, really. And my mission is to break all that open and say, no, sorry, it's not a big secret, it's not complicated, it's not science. You know, it's basic concepts and you and I and everyone can understand it, honestly. If I can understand it, I can assure you we have lots of people can understand we it. We have, just a quick diversion here. Uh, we have batteries of researchers on the show, as you know, you know, ha aircraft hangars full of them. Um, and we did some digging on you. Um, oh my goodness. And, yeah, and, and we, a little bird told us that um, the successful Jubilee campaign, 2000 campaign, is it true that Muhammad Ali came to you and said that you're the most incredible woman and thank you very much for doing this? Oh, don't make me cry. He did. He did. And you know what he did? He was, he was I mean, he was very ill already and um, hardly able to speak. But when I said goodbye to him, he lifted me up like this so that we were eyeball to eyeball. And he said, don't ever give up on your fight, you know. <gasps> to attempted. this day, it makes me go cold really i mean and he was terribly strong you know yeah were you he tempted was... just to have a no yeah. no no i wanted to kiss him actually <laughs> um for heffing lifting up yeah. literally lifting. and and metaphorically and educationally when the women get it we took a film around europe as you know and when in the q and a's yeah. My wife, who produced the film, Megan, she spotted something when we came out of a screening. She said, do you notice the difference between male questions and female questions? I said, mm. what are they? And she said, um, me women ask a simple question that moves the debate forward. Yeah. Men showboat their economic uh, knowledge. Oh dear. And then we started seeing this theme. You know, these guys go, what about China? You know, what about the net present value of <laughs> the subprime? And you just think, oh my God, and it shuts everything down because Absolutely. it cows everybody else. Yes. And then everybody else thinks, oh right, we're off into this academic yeah, yeah. nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Educating the feminine. Boy. So this book, my book, is aimed at women and environmentalists and it's aimed at saying to them, you've got to get the grip on this because it affects you. You know, this whole idea that actually money is for the boys or those chaps in pinstripe suits in the city of London and actually it's beyond you and me. That is a conspiracy because you are profoundly affected by the way those guys are messing up the system. And it's about time you got to understand it. And what happened, what was wonderful about the woman on her kitchen table writing on pink paper was, you didn't have to ask her to do anything. She was activated by her knowledge and her education and understanding. That was enough to get her off her butt and out on the streets and, and acting. So let's just come to this then about the production of money. Yeah. And, and quickly, who, who produces money? Because there are women now sitting watching it going, OK, Anne, I'm ready. They're, and they're, okay. you know, the, the barricades are a bit... I can hear them going up all yes. over Chiswick and, yes. and, and various parts of, I don't know, middle class. Well, we've discovered that banks create money out of thin air. Right. But actually, no money can be created until you or I apply for a loan. Right. So actually, we create the money supply. When, when the economists try to tell you that it's done by the central bank or the government, they're talking rubbish. You are responsible for the money supply. When you lack confidence or you don't have enough resources or you don't have enough income, you don't apply for a loan. And if that happens at an aggregate level, the money supply contracts. If, however, your job's going well, you, your, 
you've had a pay rise, you feel good about the future, and you apply for a loan, you create more of the money supply and the money supply expands. So your signature, your signature going on a, a contract or, or on a mortgage approval yeah. or on a, on, a, on, a, on a contract to agree and to debt. And backed by collateral. And you've you've by normally some... got to say, look, I've got a bit of collateral here, unless it's a car loan or, or a credit card. But for anything major, you've got to say, I've got a bit of collateral here. So you've got to have some collateral that's fundamental to it. And at the moment, there's a shortage of collateral. There's a shortage of assets. But that's another story. So we, the people, create the money supply. We create the money supply. And when we lose confidence, we shrink it. So why aren't we getting the benefits of issuing money? Because I've read chapter six of your book, and you say that the bank should create that, should keep that privilege. Yeah, I do. Well, but why shouldn't we, the people, have that privilege? Well, because the point is we need, because the point is we, you know, we, A, we apply for a loan. Yeah. We need it to be managed. We need someone to assess, uh, assess our risk. You know, are we fraudulent? Are we a bunch of crooks or are we for real? Are we really going to do something productive in the economy? Someone has to make, and that used to be an old clerk, a bank clerk, who'd sit there and look at your records and blah, blah. So that can be a job done by, by the government. You know, you could appoint civil servants to do that job, but I just don't see the point of it, really. And then we want to move our money around and we want to shop there and do this and do that. But why do the and the banks facilitate Fine, that. but why do they get the, why do they get the kickback? On, because, because it is an exorbitant privilege. To, to, yes, it is. But, but that's but why, because we've given them that. When I say we, politicians, mainly politicians and regulators, have said they can both do that and they can also use that money to, to gamble with, basically, to speculate with. And we've, we've given them... I want us to separate those two things out again so they get back to the old boring business of lending, which is not massively profitable, as Steve says. It's hard to make a profit out of that. And then if they want to gamble, they do that under a separate heading, a separate company. And just get back to this ordinary business of providing affordable finance. And for that to happen, the central bank, the government, the treasury have to manage the banking system. So I don't believe in having a private commercial banking system that behaves like any old company. You know, we have to regulate the clean water, the, the water companies to make sure they don't dump waste into the River Thames, really, in exactly the same way we have to manage the banking system. Just taking Nan's point, it'd be interesting to see what happens because of the Vickers report, yeah. where the banks have to separate out the casino banking from the traditional. It's going to be really interesting to see what really happens under that. That's not there yet, and it will be... I'm not a great believer that masses is going to change. I want to take Anne's point on a couple of things. Um, when we devised the banking platform uh, for the change account, which was aimed at mainly people on low income, what was interesting, we, we built uh, wallets within the account so people could budget. And in the first uh, nine months, 70% uh, of the people who took it out were women because of the budgeting elements of it. There's no question, yes. you know. And it was just an interesting, it wasn't yes. something we aimed at, to be fair. Yes. It was done through advice centres and the like. Mm -hmm. And what, what that showed me to some extent was a surprise that actually it was about the practicalities rather than the forward thinking. It was about let's, let, let's manage debt. I mean, because one of the issues we've got is how do people borrow money anyway? Yeah. Real money at very low interest rates. Um, one of the things that we've done within the big issue, which, which I chair the foundation, is a rental exchange a database of people who pay their rent. If you pay your rent every day, every month for the past 20 years, where does that go on your credit rating? It doesn't. Well, it's starting to do now because we're building that in, but it doesn't. And yet that is a... That it's is a very a, good 
It's an indicator. It's a very good indicator. It hasn't got the collateral, but actually, you know, yeah. that if someone has done that for a ten, that years, they're reliable, they're trustworthy. Absolutely right. So there's your social blockchain aspect, it's, it's because actually, you can see this guy's trustworthy, this woman's trustworthy. Okay, yeah. I'm going to take a punt. Character, ability. Yeah. But practically, what has happened is the banks haven't taken out a book. And we've all gone through the stories where, you know, I'm at the age now where my son, you know, has been to university and luckily got a job, but he hasn't got a credit. He didn't have a credit card. Getting credit is really hard when you don't have a credit card. It's, it's, it's a nonsense scenario we end up in. And yet people on low income have no choice. And this is where, where we come back to the, the, the point of changing the system in many ways. I'm lucky enough over my life to have had choice of where I can borrow money, where I bank, whatever. People on lower income, both in the UK and in Sash, have very little choice. Yeah. They, 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 yeah, and it's not that they can't manage money. They can manage money amazingly well. Yeah. It's just that occasionally, if they've got a car, a tyre goes. They can't afford that little blip. Yes, yes. And therefore, but you have to go to a, a doorstep lender, let hey, hey, go, oh, uh, whatever. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not blaming some of those. You know, some of the companies are not bad. But actually, the banking system <laughs> should be better at delivering against it. Yes. And stop trying to create ulterior lending methods that say, well, you have that, I wouldn't want it. Let's create an open system that actually has benefits to all at the right price. You know, Ross, we bailed out the banking system to tune of, I mean, what was it for RBS? £46 billion? Pounds? Yes. That's huge about and, and that's what we know about. And oh, yeah. there were no terms and conditions. We should have said, we'll bail out the RBS. We look after their shareholders, but the terms are, thou shalt lend yes. to the poor. Thou shalt lend to the real economy. Yes. Thou shalt not do this. And if you don't like it, RBS, you can't have the taxpayer funding. Sorry, you can't have taxpayer guarantees. You can't have easy money from the Bank of England, QE, and you can't have the Bank of England's very low rates of interest. Of course, if you don't want that, that's fine by us too. You could manage on your own in the but, private sector. But, but instead, what we did was we bailed them out and we said, no terms and conditions. Can you imagine? But why is there such a vacuum of leadership here? I don't know. It's, it's ignorance. It's, it's fear. You know, I, I, but it mainly, and I blame the economics profession, Ross. Go on. You know, because... because <laughs> There's not a week goes by where we don't take a pot shot at this No, lot. but the point is, you know, people like Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown may know something about economics, but they were never taught about money, banks and debt, because there's no money, banks and debt in economics courses. Well, there's no more boom and, and bust, apparently. No, and that's why we have students, you know, a student insurgency, saying, hang on a minute, we do think money, banks and... Can you imagine? It's like studying agriculture without doing anything on the land or studying the sea without understanding water. Are How you shocked you... at that? I often ask people who might not have come across that piece of learning or teaching from the economics process. Are you shocked that the neoclassical school predominantly uh, don't factor in money, banks, debt? And in fact, when you talk about agriculture, also land, they don't yes. look at that right. as a factor of production. Well, Are you shocked at that? Yeah, I suppose the simple answer is yes. I mean, on one level, yes, but yeah, I suppose looking at it, you know, just thinking, well, I'm thinking Looking now, at the mess we're yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. But I think it always seems to me that there's always a difference between uh, people talk about intellectual educationists and practical people. I don't think there is that. Of course, there are people at extremes on both levels. But actually, generally, there's got to be people in the middle who are actually thinking and doing. But that's, yeah. who, you, but that's who you're talking about. I've sp I spent most of my life trying to come out with solutions that are not niche, but actually are open for, for, for many people. Because I always come across people who are very intelligent. My 3,000 big issue vendors, yeah. they understand that they pay £1.25 for a magazine and they sell it for £2.50. Now... What basic economics do you really know after that? So I, I put some money aside for my hostel and whatever. 
I'm sorry, even at that level, the, 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 everyone is... You know, it, it's, of course. It's, yeah. And we can get all tied up with acronyms. You talked about what the bankers talk about yeah. and the IMF. This is not rocket science. It's not rocket. Uh, and, you know, every woman, <laughs> most women, handle the, the family budget and manage the family budget. And they therefore know, they understand, you know, they understand about debt and credit. They understand about income and, you know, what's coming in, what's not going, expenditure and so on. You know, everybody has been abroad. Most people have been abroad. Very few people have no longer. So they, we know about exchange rates. You know, when you know those fundamentals... You anything, can build on that. Yeah. Now, you can't... I just want to warn that we can't, you know, extrapolate from a household budget to, for example, the government budget. And explain, explain because, why. Because... Because George because, Osborne was brilliant at this. Yes. Convincing voters that you've got to run a government and a country yeah. like a household. Yeah, because because... A, there's the aggregate level, and B, the government, you, you don't have a Bank of England behind you that's actually there to support your borrowing and your, and, and, and your economic activity. You don't have that, that private bank being there just for you, which is what the Bank of England is for. But more than anything, it's about the fact that governments can issue bonds because they have taxpayers behind them, you know, and there's a new taxpayer born every day. And, and taxpayers, we know, will go on into the future. We know that the British government has got a, a system of collecting taxes in the currency which backs up the British government's borrowing. Now, you don't have that kind of guarantee around your income if you're a housewife. You know, you may not have... You don't have taxpayers delivering for you every January, at the end of every January or the beginning of every January, which is what the government has. Now... That's a great thing because it enables the government to borrow, yes. knowing that... They, and that's why people love to buy government borrowings. And that's yep. why speculators love government borrowing because it's such a safe, wonderful asset. You know that the British taxpayer... Now, if you go to a poor country like Malawi, where they don't do tax collection very well, their currency has very little value and their government can borrow very little. So we're not like... Households are not like government, but women understand budgets and they understand all the key concepts in economics and there's no reason why they shouldn't have much greater understanding and act on it. But don't you think it's remiss of a Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK to not see taxpayers as an asset and, and, and to actually say, no, we are going to borrow this money, we are going to push it into the real economy and we're going to yes. get things moving again. Yes. And it's myopic and it's blinkered for a, a Chancellor of the Exchequer to say, we're going to treat this like a household budget because really that's as far as my economic understanding goes. No, but, you know, while I'm very quick to blame politicians, the fact is they were advised by economists to do this. So we're back like, to, we're back people to like the... Ken Rogoff said there was a limit to what governments could borrow. Now, the point is that a government, the government's budget, unlike yours and my budget, it balances when the economy is healthy and gets better. When the economy crashes, the budget goes up cool. like a seesaw. It literally works, you know, it's, it's a matter of light and following day, really. Now, for the deficit to come down, the private sector has to improve and to get stronger. That's all that has to happen. But austerity is taking money out of and then the whole scenario. People like Ken Rogoff advised the government to take even more activity out of the economy at a time when the economy was already down. Has right? he got a Nobel Prize? <laughs> no. They'll give him one. No, but, well, but the I point mean, is... But it's a derelict... So, the, the profession so, is derelict at the no, moment. No, in that sense, the profession actually briefed the politicians to behave like that. And, and so you can blame the politicians, 
but really, I think we have to blame the profession and its weaknesses. We have to finish on a positive note, because, I mean, you know, people, people will have really, I think, understood what, what you've both said and, and understood the need to get the banking system moving again and they understood to get the economists to start thinking in real-world terms. Yes. We talked about education. The book's excellent. You're on the ground, Ecology Building Society. You're doing it. How do we end? Give us some positivity of, of how we get well, out of I this. I think there's a, there are movements out there of understanding that things have gone badly wrong. That we, would, we were all so shocked after 2007, we were stunned into silence, really. The same going to happen again. People now have a, a sense that there's some very grave injustice out there. And there's a, a, an insurgency against it. There's uprisings. Donald Trump represents that. Brexit is about that. What's happening in Europe is about that. The question is, will we be able to channel that anger now into something positive, into a transformation of the system? I don't know whether or not the financial system and the regulators and the politicians are going to catch up quickly enough with what's happening in order to correct all those imbalances before the people revolt even more. But I suspect they're beginning to get the message that there's something very wrong and it has to be fixed. And that's a good thing. Um, your solution, briefly? Well, I'll just give you two examples. One is the Global Alliance of Banking on Values, which has started the year at 39 banks, will end the year at 50-odd banks, probably about 30 million of, uh, of customers who actually want more value from, from their own bank. And secondly, from a purely Sascada point of view, a low-cost banking platform we're being asked to, to actually put into a number of mutuals around the UK and internationally to deliver a whole raft of current account financial services to a broader set of people that are not just hitting the top 10%, but creating a first-class product for people on all levels. And I think that is being driven not only from technology, but from people themselves wanting change with the existing banking system. Value, not money. Yes. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. Congratulations on uh, the many, uh, Mr Scada, but also <laughs> um, the, uh, your building society, Ecology. Thank you both for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. That's it from Renegade Inc. HQ this week. You can drop the team a mail, studio at renegadeinc.com, or tweet us at Renegade Inc. Join us next week for more insight from those people who are thinking differently. But until then, stay curious. Renegade Inc. Radio is produced in collaboration with the XE Network of Podcasts. Check out our other shows at xenetwork.org. Coming up, a few extra questions for this episode's guests in After Hours. Stay with us. Hi, welcome, Renegade Inc. This is After Hours with Steve Round and uh, Anne Pettifer. Uh, um, guys, basically, this is the bit of the show where uh, we ask, we put you in a bind, we put you in a position that you don't want to be, and ask you some quick-fire questions. I think they're called, um, and get you uh, to well, we find out a little bit more about you. Um, and let's start with you. Uh, if you were to be caught in a ski lift with anyone for 24 hours, who would it be? Oh my goodness! Um, I think Andy Haldane from the Bank of England. Why? Because he's, he's, he's real intellectual and he asks difficult questions and he tackles difficult questions and he's just interesting. His only, his only weakness is that he's a man you support. Oh my gosh. He'd talk about that as well, wouldn't he? Um, but, but just one thing on him, on, and, on Andy. Yes. Recently he came out and he said the problem with British business is productivity. Yeah. Right. 
Isn't the problem with British business that it's over-indebted and, and the economy's weak? Indeed. But the point is you could have a great argument with him about that. Great. He, he would really engage, and, and he is, I think he is wrong about that. I mean, there is a problem of productivity, but it is to do with the lack of investment and of lack of real potential out there in the economy. Should have seen we the, should focus on that. Totally. We should have seen the venom in the FT comments when he said it. <laughs> bloody civil servant or bloody economist. <laughs> uh, you should get out of his office more. Yeah. It's trapped in a ski lift with someone, who is it? Well, I don't think he would ski, but I think it would have been Nelson Mandela. Uh, having spent some time with the trade union movement over in South Africa, just after he came out, I was never lucky enough to meet him. But actually how someone could come in uh, and actually slowly change the country, but quite fast, actually, and without a lot of the, the, the infrastructure that he, he had to promise to deliver, and over a period of time that's being slowly delivered. I think it's an amazing success story that probably is changing slightly now. It's probably been a bit too long, but I think just the way he came out, I was lucky enough to see him in a few speeches in Birmingham and the like, and, and uh, the, the, he was just an he was amazing a great person. Yes, yes, and, and the, you can honestly say he was talking and there was no, nothing bad in his, in his speech. It was all about forward looking and about trying to create something of real value across the whole piece. And about respecting everybody. Absolutely that right. That was then. It, this is not just a black empowerment. This is about everything here. Yeah, this yeah. is about Africa moving forward. I think that was. Yeah. That must be very difficult to do. I'd love to be, believe that I could have done that, but I doubt it very much. So, Wonderful. but I'm not sure he was a great. He was a great skier, but there we go. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never, you know. never know. He probably was. Don't write him off. He probably was. Religion or spirituality? Um, spirituality. I think I'm not a great religious person. I'm going off religion fast, actually. But, Were you previously but, religious? Yes, I've always been religious, and, and I have deep faith, I know that. Um, and some of the best people I know are religious, but the religions are cause of so much division in society. There is something terribly wrong about yes. the way they're organised, and I think it's organised religion that's the problem. Ordinary people of faith, whether they're Muslims or Christians or Protestants or Catholics, I've worked with people of faith and it's, it's wonderful working with them. They have a sort of selflessness which, is, which comes from their religion, religious belief. Mm -hmm. And they were willing to go to the ends of the earth to cancel the debts, for example. So, I mean, but, I but agree there's on that so level. much that yes. organised religion is bad at. One of the things I would say, I mean, I was, uh, I ran the Homeless World Cup in uh, the USA, I won't say where it was, but actually everyone I met had a business card with a, with, with a Bible quote on, on the back, and yet I didn't think there was a compassionate bone in their body, to be honest. Yeah. They could quote every, every yes. line in the Bible. I mean, and that's... Not, and that's, yeah. a, that's what I was probably saying, you and know. And that's an example of, of, of you know... Religion being financialized yes. and also, you know, marketized actually. Yeah. So that, yeah. Are there no limits to this neoliberal agenda? No, Doing God's work. Yeah. If you, uh, Goldman. Uh, if you had to live in any city in the world other than London, I'm not sure I'm talking to somebody who'd like to live in London, but uh, mm. you know, you've, I've lived you've, in London. Uh, any city in the world other than London? I'd like to live in Newcastle, actually. I've thought Newcastle is, uh, for a long time, I love the dynamism of it, and, and I love Geordies, really. I just, I like e even the way they speak, the musicality of their You should come speech. to Liverpool. I think yeah. we can trump them. Well, as a man, I can't do it. From Manchester, I can't do that. Um, oh, very simple. Rome. Piazza Navona in Rome for me, that's it. 
Oh, wow. He's absolutely <laughs> definitely. Classy. classy. <laughs> Newcastle and Pettifer, Rome. <laughs> Make of that what you will. C uh, cook for people or be cooked for? Be cooked for. Okay. Be cooked for people. I love it. Do you? Signature, oh, yes. signature dish? Um, well, uh, oh gosh, you've got me there. Um, I make a very good Greek frittata mm. with lots of olives in it. I like to pre-entertain. Do you? <laughs> yeah. well, drink pouring the wine out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, take the train or get on the plane? Oh, train generally. All the time. Well, I don't think we've had a plane yet. You know. No, I don't. I think. Well, I think know, from my from my ecological and environmental background, it, it's quite. Diff I mean, train is generally safer yeah. and, and better. My view is I've been on Ryanair. Yeah, that's enough to put anyone. <laughs> but you know, I, I'm a I'm an old lady, and I remember when you know airline travel was was a wonderfully sexy mm. thing to do. It is now a deeply unpleasant experience. <laughs> um, lastly, the book that changed you, and it can be fact or fiction, or fiction and non-fiction. Um, the book that changed you, and it's as difficult as who you'd get caught in a ski lift with. So for me, it's um, Julius Nyerere's Ujama, which I remember, I can remember waking up in the middle of the night, staying in a friend's house and not being able to sleep and pulling it off the shelf. I can still see myself doing it. And as a result of that, I changed, we changed our plans and I went back to Africa and Tanzania and he was still alive. And I worked with him on the, on the Jubilee debt campaign. And so that was transform. It did transform my life. That book. Oh, I'm gonna. That, sorry, I'm gonna upset. Mine was Peter Pan. Um, my kids would tell me that <laughs> I do live in Never Neverland. Um, but actually, uh, there's a great quote in there, which is, you know, "To die would be an awfully big adventure." But I've always used it as "To live is an awfully big adventure," because when you're trying to do things, as we all do, some it's good, some's bad, some's. But it's an yeah. adventure, and I think yeah. that's the way I've always treated life. So for me, it's always stuck in my head. Wonderful. Thank you both very much. That was it, After Hours with Anne and Steve. Uh, and until next time, bye.